welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Yesterday, the Federal Reserve proposed new banking rules that reduce regulations for all but America's biggest lenders in an effort to reduce regulatory compliance requirements. In a speech in September, Fed Chair Jay Powell discussed banking regulations. We want the strongest regulation, the the highest standards to be applied to the very large financial institutions that are systemically important. As we move down the food chain to the regionals and then the medium-sized banks, and then into the smaller community banks. We want to make sure that we're tailoring regulation substantially at each step of that. Joining me is Robert Hawken, a professor at Cornell University Law School. So, Bob, now there will be a tiered system for bank regulations that will depend not only on total assets, but on other risk factors as well. Will you explain how the system will work? Yeah, so it's actually kind of surprising. I think uh, uh, Chairman Powell has, to some extent, mischaracterized um, what the nature of the proposal is, the proposed rule change uh, is that was announced yesterday, right? So originally what we were, what we did after uh, the crash, right, with Don Frank was we would say, we said basically all banking institutions with assets in excess of about 50 billion uh, would be subject to some heightened prudential standards, in particular in, in the realm of uh, capital regulation uh, and uh, liquidity uh, regulation. Um, then as we talked about uh, last spring, um, the Congress uh, and uh, Mr. Trump uh, changed uh, the rules a bit there last spring by raising that threshold to 250 billion, right, from 50 billion. So they quintupled it, right? Now, um, what they did was, and they gave the Fed uh, sort of uh, instructions to um, sort of change the prudential rules that would apply, sort of in light of that new set of standards. But we were given to think that at least they would stay high, right, stay high for the banks that were 250 billion uh, and larger. But what's really quite most intriguing, I think, about the Fed proposal announced yesterday was that they're actually going to relax the capital standards and the liquidity standards, even for the banks uh, with assets between 250 and 700 uh, billion dollars. So, in other words, the sort of tiered system that Mr. Powell was talking about is, in a way, a kind of a distraction. In a way, it's a kind of a sideshow because the thing that's most remarkable and surprising is the fact that they're relaxing the standards even for the largest banks. So, does weak does weakening the rules even for banks that are not considered systemically important pose a risk to the system? And what about for banks that are? Yeah, I think uh, it definitely poses a significant risk to the system, right, to relax the capital standards and the liquidity standards for the mega banks, right, the $250 billion and larger. Um, I think it also, uh, I think, adds significant risk to the system uh, to lighten the regulatory load for the institutions between 50 and $250 uh, billion as well. In other words, I think that the legislation that was passed last spring uh, that we talked about was itself also a move in the wrong direction. I think it's a bit of a mistake uh, to describe banks that have $100 billion or $150 billion in assets as being small community banks. These are huge institutions. They're simply a bit smaller than the $250 billion uh, in institutions. Uh, so I think you add risk to the system even by doing that. And so we were you know, moving in the wrong direction even last spring. But again, the surprising thing um, about yesterday is that we're uh, learning that the Fed wants to go even further uh, in the wrong direction, even with respect uh, to those mega banks with assets under management of over uh, $250 billion.
Well, there's also apparently more streamlining and tweaking of regulations in the works. Tell us about the momentum that financial regulators seem to be gaining and the new what may happen next. Yeah. So, I mean, the the trend is sort of predictable. Um, I think the only thing that might not have been predicted was just the speed uh, with which it, uh, it sort of uh, commenced and then with which it has been proceeding ever since it commenced, right? So we seem to be relaxing, uh, again, liquidity standards and capital standards, which are probably the most important uh, macroprudential regulatory tools that we have. In addition, of course, we're rolling back the regulations in the realm of consumer financial protection, uh, which not only is important, of course, to ordinary Janes and Joes like you and me, uh, but also is systemically important because, as we know, right, the most toxic assets that ultimately cause a financial system to implode often are those uh, that are extended in predatory ways that would normally be uh, prohibited uh, if we had actual, you know, strong consumer protection standards uh, still in place. But as you as you know, of course, uh, Mr. Mulvaney uh, effectively worked a coup uh, in taking over the CFPB uh, about a year ago uh, and has basically dropped most of the enforcement actions that it had underway. And now we have uh, actual statutory changes and regulatory changes afoot, essentially repealing or eliminating uh, particular regulations that the CFPB would have had the jurisdiction to uh, enforce in the first place. So that's yet another uh, way in which I think um, we're really heading in the wrong direction and in a, at, a, at a, an accelerated pace that I think is quite ominous. The Federal Reserve and the Office of the Controller of the Currency are independent mm-hmm. bank regulators. Yeah. How much of the mm-hmm. easing of regulations is coming from within those agencies and how much from pressure from without? So that's always a somewhat tough call because the the pressure from without without is sort of hard to measure. As you said, these are independent agencies, and so they are nominally or you know strictly speaking uh, not subject uh, to pressures that are uh, imposed by Congress or by the president once they're in office. But I think it would be unrealistic to think that they're not affected um, by say constant hearings or constant haranguing uh, by a president or by members of Congress or what have you. Uh, so it's possible uh, that the pressure that's being applied by by Republicans in Congress and by Mr. Trump himself and his Treasury Department are having some effect. But it's also, of course, possible that these people themselves, right, the people in the agencies, are a bit more uh, of a deregulatory uh, persuasion, if for no other reason than that a growing number of them are, of course, appointees uh, of Mr. Trump's. So midterms are coming up, Bob. If the Mm -hmm. Democrats take the House or the Senate in the midterms, will that stop or slow the deregulatory efforts? I think it will, uh, and I have a somewhat uh, idiosyncratic reason for thinking so that I haven't seen out in the press yet. So as you know, I'm sort of metabolically optimistic, um, <laughs> uh, so you might you might want to sort of uh, take this with a grain of salt, but I actually think we're going to, that the Dems are going to take the House and the Senate. I think when that happens, Mr. Trump is going to become a kind of Democrat. We know he doesn't have principles, right? Uh, he's a very uh, pragmatic, would be the nice way of saying it. Uh, opportunistic would be the somewhat less nice way of saying it. I think Mr. Trump, um, keen on leaving a legacy, um, is going to sound increasingly like a Democrat once the Congress changes hands. And at that point, um, the pressures on the regulators will be of a decidedly different sort than they've been over the last couple of years. And that at least at the margin, I think, will slow the rate of deregulatory uh, momentum that we've seen gathering steam over the last couple of years. I'm almost speechless, Bob, but not quite. So, <laughs> so what about just we have about 
45 seconds here. Will will mm-hmm. Democrats, if they take control and they start uh, being in charge of the banking committees, et cetera, will that have any effect? About 30 seconds. Yeah, it does have an effect. Um, again, it's hard to measure it, um, but you know the regulators are not completely autistic, right? They they hear the pressures, they they hear what people are saying, what people are thinking, and if most of the pressures and most of the thoughts that are being expressed come from a pro-regulatory uh, angle, uh, that can't help but affect them. All right, thanks so much, Bob. As always, that's Robert Hockett. He is a professor at Cornell University Law School. Robert Bowers, the man accused of killing 11 people in a Pittsburgh synagogue, pleaded not guilty in federal court today to 44 counts, including murder and hate crimes. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. Bob, tell us about the hate crimes he's charged with and what prosecutors will have to prove to convict him of those. Sure. Well, the history of hate crimes uh, really starts in uh, 1968 when Congress passed the first hate crime statute, and it basically makes it a crime to use or threaten force to willfully interfere with any person because of their race, color, religion, or national origin. So it's, it's an interesting statute because generally uh, criminal statutes don't look to the motive behind a killing or, or an act. They simply look to the conduct. But in this case, uh, in hate crimes, prosecutors have to prove that uh, not only was somebody murdered, but they were murdered um, because of their their gender, because of their race, because of their uh, religion. And so it really goes to the motive of the killing. And in this case, uh, the motive, according to prosecutors, was anti Semitism. The um, the gunman uh, shouted out uh, uh, "death to Jews" or something to that effect as he was shooting allegedly in the temple, and that's what they will rely upon in order to prove those charges. Death penalty cases are rare in federal court, but here federal prosecutors say they are pursuing the death penalty. Explain how that affects the trial itself. For example, the selection of a death penalty qualified jury. Sure. Well, as you said, June, death penalty cases are relatively rare in federal court. Only three people have been executed since the federal death penalty was reinstated in 1998. Um, and ultimately, it's important for people to remember that the decision about whether a defendant will receive death or life in prison is up to the jury. Uh, so that means that when a jury is impaneled, um, there are additional questions that have to be asked of those jurors to make sure that jurors can approach that decision with an open mind. And jurors who have a moral aversion to the death penalty, regardless of the facts of a case, um, will not be permitted to sit on that jury. So it takes time for both the defense and prosecutors to arrive with a jury that they think can be fair. And if you're the prosecutor, you want to make sure it's somebody who is willing to apply the death penalty if they believe it's warranted under the facts of the case. So if he's found guilty of the crimes that carry the death penalty, there will be a death penalty phase, and the jury will hear from witnesses, including the victims. The Washington Post has a story out today that some rabbis oppose the death penalties, even in this case. How might that weigh in to the jury's decision and to the presentation? 
Well, it does weigh in. Prosecutors are always going to listen to victims as they put their case together. And on a question of whether to seek a death penalty, the victims will be considered. But ultimately, the decision is with the Department of Justice and with prosecutors because prosecutors are, of course, representing the entire country, not only the victims of the crime. But, for example, in the Dylan Roof case where the white supremacist was sentenced to death last year for... Uh, hate-driven uh, crimes. That was a case where families of those victims also did not want them to be executed because of their Christian beliefs. So it's something prosecutors will have to consider, but ultimately the decision about whether to charge and seek the death penalty uh, will be with prosecutors, and of course jury. the jury will ultimately make that determination. Bob, the state is also charging him, and the Allegheny County District Attorney has also said he'll seek the death penalty. What's the point of having a state trial after a federal trial? That's a good question. A lot of people are are perplexed by that. Um, The reason that there is a state trial as well is because these crimes uh, constitute violations of both state and federal law. So the state has a basis to bring these charges as well. And often those charges are brought in the state after the federal charges just to ensure that if ultimately the federal charges are overturned for any reason, that there are these other charges out there that will ensure that the defendant uh, remains in jail. And ultimately, it may be the state charges on which he is um, sentenced uh, instead of the federal charges. But it's important to also note that under the death penalty process, the federal system is more will move more expeditiously because a death penalty conviction on the state level runs through the appeals process on the state level and then has a complete second layer of appeals through the federal system. If you're convicted of only the federal death penalty, it only goes through one layer of appellate review and moves a little bit quicker. But in either case, the process is slow. Question about the um, proceeding this morning. His federal public defender said he pleaded not guilty, quote, as is typical at this stage of the proceeding. It is typical, but stating it is not so typical. Was that just information or was he signaling a change of plea possibly? We have about 40 seconds here. Well, you're right, Jim, it's not typical. Uh, It may be that he's trying to signal to prosecutors that he's looking to cut some kind of a deal. Often in those cases, the role of the public defender uh, or the defense lawyer is simply to try to save his client's life and try to see whether he can convince prosecutors to accept a guilty plea that will only result in life in prison as opposed to the death penalty. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Mintz. He's a partner at Carter & English and a former federal prosecutor. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.